Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you've been here very long, it's not shocking. We are in the middle of a series through uh, the Beatitudes called the Counter Kingdom. Uh, and so it is just good to be with you today. It's good to open God's word together to see what he might encourage us with uh, today. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We're continuing our series, Counter Kingdom, where we've been talking about basically who experiences blessing inside the kingdom of God by looking at Jesus's statements of blessing that we call the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 is where you find those. And so here we are in week seven of an eight-week series through the Beatitudes. And these blessings in the Beatitudes, they're statements of grace, right? They're, before he gets into the Sermon on the Mount, these are statements of blessing, statements of grace that Jesus is bestowing on the people of his kingdom. And they're declarations. I said this last time we met. They are declarations before they are exhortations. That doesn't mean they're not exhortations. It doesn't mean he's not encouraging some things. But it does mean that he first and foremost is blessing. He is declaring a blessing over people. And we have said throughout this series that these blessings are unexpected blessings for unexpecting people. We find that again, I think, today with today's beatitude. The context just of just in general where we're at in the story of history, Jesus comes on the scene in Israel and it's, they're under Roman oppression. Not Roman oppression from far away in Rome, but Rome is actually occupying the land. They are in Israel and they are oppressing their people. And while they may play nice to a certain degree, they allow them to worship in the temple, they allow them to have their festivals, they're taxing them like crazy. Uncle Caesar is way worse than Uncle Sam, I can promise you that. And they are squashing all kinds of revolts or anything that even sniffs of a revolt. Just about 167 years prior though, before Rome occupied the land, there was a Maccabean revolt in the intertestamental period and that was squashed. Much of Israel's history, they were in conflict with other nations, squashed. This is just the reality for Israel. They were a lot of times in conflict. And now here you have Rome occupying the country and in Jesus's day, there were a group of Jews called the Zealots who were a political movement that were ready to take the, the, the land back by force. They were ready, they were waiting on the moments that they needed to capitalize on to take the land back. And so Israel continues to wait. Israel is waiting for a true independence, even though they're in the land, they're under other foreign rule. And most believe that when Messiah finally came, he would set them free. And this was definitely true of the moment in time that Jesus steps in. And it's also true even of his inner circle. I mean, even one of his disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. You can imagine how some of those campfire discussions might have gone at night between Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the former tax collector, probably fireworks for sure, probably a little bit more tense than some of your journey group conversations. But that's the reality that Jesus finds himself in. This is the setting of his ministry and it's the setting even of his inner circle. And here comes Jesus saying something like this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Hmm, blessed are the peacemakers 
unexpected blessings for unexpected people. And while our world is not the same as first century Judaism, as we've talked about a lot, it feels like, because the texts have kind of driven that over the last few months, we live in a very divisive and divided world with a lot of conflict. Yesterday morning, my family, my uh, wife and I and my oldest son went to vote, probably the earliest I've ever voted. but we went to vote, he came up in town because he works somewhere else during the week, so we took advantage of, of early voting yesterday. And just thinking through the, the, um, the things that we're voting for, the issues, the candidates, even this week I had a conversation with somebody and we were talking about one of the races and two of the candidates that we were talking about, one of the candidates seemed to, at least on face value, say something kind about the other candidate. And the response of this person to me was like, what do you think that meant by that? You know, I'm like, I didn't know. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they were just being charitable. To which I received the response, no way. <laughs> Are you serious? Charitable? In politics? The vitriol we have just around political things in our country, we don't have to go far to see that there's a lot of conflict. And the vitriol, it's not just simply that we disagree. There is hate. There's vitriol towards the other party, but we don't have to look at politics to see it. We can look in our house, right? If you're married, you probably have conflict, right? If not, I'd like to talk to you because that's pretty impressive. You've got two sinners living under the same roof. The reality is there's going to be some conflict and not only marriage conflict is reality, but if you have kids, conflict, right? I mean, all you have to have is one kid to have conflict, if you got two kids, you got a lot of conflict. Um, if you're anything like, like my house. So the reality is like, we don't have to even go outside of our own home to see that there's conflict in our world. We can go to work, we see conflict between employees, sometimes between the company and the customer. I fully confess, I nearly lost my Christianity on DirecTV two years ago. The reality is like when you have a business, a lot of times there's conflict. When you're in school, there's conflict, maybe within the school, right? Like bullying or just certain types of um, passive aggressive things that happen in school, but there's conflict within schools. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, we played our rival uh, in football. There was eggs thrown at people. And one year there ended up being a dead animal hung from a bridge. Crazy. He's a deacon in a church, by the way, now, the guy that did that. (laughs) See, God can redeem anything. But conflict, right? Conflict in schools, conflict all over the place. But we also see conflict because of broken systems, right? We see wars that happen because of brokenness. We see poverty that's not always because of the system, but in a large part, it is for a lot of people because of broken systems that are in place. And with all this conflict and brokenness all around us, it's no surprise then that Jesus would bless peacemakers. I mean, that seems to be a no-brainer. It seems to make a lot of sense. The bigger question, though, is like, how can we actually be peacemakers? And he's blessing this as a declaration. So this is not simply like, y'all should go make more peace, do better. He's saying it as though it's an expected reality, not wishful thinking, but that he's blessing actual people who are peacemakers, blessing people then and blessing people now. But how does peacemaking actually work? And not only that, maybe the bigger question with how does it work is really like, do we really want peace? Because if we're honest, it's not just that making peace seems difficult. The reality is like, we're probably more like the world than we care to admit. Sometimes we like a little conflict. 
I heard, again, a kid this week who was taken out of school for a doctor appointment, a sixth grader, going to the doctor, told their mom they didn't want to be at the doctor long, they needed to get back to school because they didn't want to miss out on learning and they didn't want to get behind, but not on education. She said, I got to get back because I'm going to miss the drama. She was in a hurry to get back to school to learn about what drama had happened while she was there. She didn't want to get behind on the drama. And some of you laugh, you're like, that's crazy. Some of y'all watch The Bachelor, so you know that's the case. You're not watching reality TV because you know it's successful. You're watching it for the conflict, the drama. Sometimes we just like a little bit of drama. Sometimes we like a little bit of conflict. Sometimes we prefer revenge. Like I mentioned in our mercy sermon a few weeks ago, we just like it. Peacemaking sounds hard. And if we're honest, it sounds a little less interesting. Yet Paul in Romans chapter 12 says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now that's quite a challenge, especially when you consider that this wasn't written to some monks who are living off separate from the world. This was written to a church at the heart of the Roman Empire filled with Jewish and Gentile Christians and in the midst of a pluralistic and pagan society. But what Paul is telling them, he's just taking Jesus' lead. Blessed are the peacemakers. So how are we to be peacemakers in our day? Doesn't Jesus understand just how crazy this sounds? He doesn't say it's easy, but he does say it's blessed. So let's engage him on this by examining this within the following four ideas. I want us to think about the profoundness of peacemaking. I want us to think about the fact that we live in a peaceless world. I want us to look at the price of peacemaking. And last, I want us to see the path to peacemaking. So the profoundness of peacemaking, the, the peaceless world, the price of peacemaking, and the path to peacemaking. So let's just start with just the profoundness of peacemaking. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? When we think about peace, we typically think, I think about three main ways that we kind of engage with peace on a regular basis. Number one, we love peace. Like we love peace. Who doesn't love peace? Yeah, you might like to watch other people not be at peace on TV, but in reality, we want personally for us to have some sort of peace, some inner peace. We don't like anxiety. We don't want restlessness. We love and peace. But because we love peace, the second way we engage with it is then we desire peace. We seek out peace. We try to put systems in our lives that lead to peace. We want to put ourselves in environments that promote peace. And because of that, then if we ever find peace, the third way we engage with it is we try to maintain peace, right? Certain individuals are even more about maintaining peace than others, right? I mean, y'all know those people. Maybe you're one of those people. Some people that go to great lengths just to maintain peace. They won't tell someone no to maintain peace. They won't stand up for themselves to maintain peace. Peace, and sometimes they even compromise in ways that are unhealthy or that aren't right to maintain peace at all costs. 
What's profound, though, is that none of these, loving peace, desiring peace, maintaining peace, are the same as making peace. Jesus doesn't, ser- doesn't merely say, blessed are the peace lovers, or blessed are the peace seekers, or blessed are the peace keepers. He says, blessed are the peace makers. So what does that look like? Well, peacemaking is not merely a lack of conflict, even though a lot of times we think that way. It's not merely a lack of conflict in our life, and peacemaking is not merely some internal state of being. Peacemaking is reconciliation of two or more parties to resolve conflict. It's reconciliation of two or more parties to resolve conflict. But at the root of peacemaking, however, especially is the word peace. And especially for the Jews in their time, the word peace would definitely resonate with them that it's related to a Hebrew word that they used often and still do today. The word is shalom. Shalom takes some nuance for us. It's not something that we say in our culture. So we have to do a little bit of work because often translated in the Old Testament as peace but its meaning is a bit more complex. It definitely includes peace, but it also carries more of the idea of wholeness or completeness or harmony. And so what is so intriguing here is that God is the original maker and sustainer of shalom. God is the maker of peace. God is the maker of harmony. Within the Godhead, you have the Trinity. This is one of the things that separates Christianity from all other religions and faith-based systems, and that's the fact that we believe in one God and three people, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Trinity is by nature at shalom. There is harmony, there is peace, there is mutual honor and completeness within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Well, why does that matter? Am I just trying to teach you some theology this morning? It matters immensely because this means that the Trinity that created the world, that the fabric of creation initially was shalom. The Trinitarian God did not make a world with strife, with conflict and with tension. It was an overflow of the harmony and shalom within the Godhead that they made the world. The world in which we live was created in shalom. Therefore, shalom was the state of being before creation and the essence of the reality in the world at creation. Shalom was something God did himself in the beginning because it's who he is. Michael Reeves in his amazing book, Delighting in the Trinity, I would highly recommend you read it. It might sound like it's really high level, but I feel like it's actually pretty accessible. Delighting in the Trinity, this is what Michael Reeves says in the book. It is from the heavenly harmony of the Father, Son, and Spirit that this universal frame of the cosmos and all created harmony comes. To hear a tuneful harmony can be one of the most intoxically beautiful experiences. I'm gonna stop. Yesterday we were driving down the car. I don't know what it is. I'm weird about seasons and certain music. And like on a cold or cool rainy fall day, I just love listening to some classical music. 
and I've been working on the sermon, so it just resonated with me. So I played this song I just love. It's called On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter. And I just, there's something intoxicating about just a good harmony, just a good tune. And this is what he's saying. And so he says, and no wonder, as in heaven on earth, the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been in delicious harmony. That's odd, but his word. They've always been in delicious harmony, and thus they create a world where harmonies, distinct beings, persons, or notes working in unity are good, mirroring the very being of the triune God. As humanity are image bearers of this harmonious God, we were made for shalom, for harmony, for peace, peace with God and peace with one another. And Jesus is declaring blessing to image bearers who act like their father, who act like their creator by making peace with others. And because God is the maker of shalom, this is actually quite profound. But Jesus says that we can step into shalom making. We can join in this aspect of divinity. You see, counter-kingdom people are not simply people who love peace. Counter-kingdom people are not simply people who desire peace. Counter-kingdom people are not simply people who maintain peace. Counter-kingdom people are people who make peace. And as we make shalom in our world, we resemble our Father who makes shalom. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. What a blessing. Are you ready to do this? You need to just stop preaching. I mean, the reality is you probably do want to do it, but we know like that's not the world we live in. It doesn't feel like a lot of peace and harmony out there. Instead, we see a lot of conflict. We see a lot of strife. We see a lot of irreconcilable differences because in our world, peace is desired, but it's rarely realized Peace is loved, but rarely is it actually maintained if we can get it. The world is not at shalom. We live in a peaceless world. And I don't have to tell you that. Like, you know that. So the question is, what's the issue? Where's the breakdown? What are the sources of peacelessness in our world? And I think first, we lack peace in our world because we try to use what I'm calling counterfeit resolutions for peace. For example, we see in some ways, we see kind of this ancient philosophy of stoicism that's been around a long time. We, we try to find internal peace by steeling ourselves against external conflict or external suffering. We attempt to be unbothered on the inside but with, by what's going on on the outside. And it's been around for a long time, stoicism has, but it's, it always kind of goes through renaissance here and there. And, and there's a modern day, maybe stoic that you might've heard of. Um, when, when they were in conflict, this is attempt, how they attempted to find peace. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel. Don't let them know. But now they know, let it go. Of course, y'all know that. Some of y'all might have kids dressed as that later. Turn away, slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me. Anyway, Elsa, the stoic. Now, we all know this was an attempt for her to steel herself against the pain and the conflict. 
but she clearly did care. She clearly was struggling. You see, not only does stoicism not typically work in the sense that it needs to, but to be truly unaffected by conflict and pain would make us calloused and emotionless. If you did somehow get any kind of peace from that, you would at least be getting peace at the expense of being less human. Escaping reality doesn't actually engage reality because the conflict still exists and it doesn't resolve the conflict. There isn't reconciliation. It doesn't usher in peace. It's a counterfeit resolution. But the other resolution this peaceless world attempts to find peace is just to remove conflict, to remove the conflicting party, so it were, as it were. And here's the problem with that. Like this, when we, when we seek external peace by removing the threat of peace, it ends up making us possibly authoritarian, right? I mean, there are certain scenarios, I feel like I need to throw this caveat out. There are certain scenarios in your life where if you're in danger, you do need to remove yourself from that conflict. But in a lot of ways, what we typically do is we exert our power over someone else that's causing us conflict. And instead of reconciling, we just want to end the opponent. We want to end the conflict with power. And this is more or less not actually ushering in peace. It's just a trade of threats. They were the threat. Now you're the threat. That's the only change. You eliminate the threat to your peace by becoming a threat to their peace yourself. It actually perpetuates a lack of peace. It's not a resolution. These approaches fall short because they don't address the source of peacelessness. They're counterfeit resolutions. Because the issue is not simply a wrong approach to resolving conflict. The root of our peaceless world is our rebellion against the shalom-making God. Thinking back to the creation at Trinity when in Shalom themselves, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit makes a world at Shalom, but we turned away from the Shalom-making God to seek our own Shalom, our own peace, our own wholeness apart from God. We worshiped other gods. And here's the deal. Not only do we have counterfeit resolutions, we worship counterfeit gods. And that's the source of our peacelessness. And for a lot of us, it's like, you're not propping up an idol in your house, but what you are doing and what I do struggle with myself to do is to worship other things, to, to elevate sometimes even good things to then ultimate things, ourselves. We worship ourselves. I determine what's true. I say what's right. I do what I want. No one tells me what to do. Maybe for you, it's money and the comfort and the security that you feel from it. It's fine to have money, right? It's a blessing to have money. But when it becomes the ultimate thing that you sacrifice things for, you now have broken shalom with your maker. Just pursue shalom with that. We could go on and on, sex, intimacy, we can worship that. Power, we can worship that. Relationships, it doesn't have to be marriage relationships. It can be your children's relationships. It can be other friendships that we elevate too high and we sacrifice things around us for it. And for some of us, it's just religion. 
right? You've decided that, that what you want to worship is not actually Jesus, but some sort of system in which you feel like you can put him in your debt by being a good person. No matter where you are, we all struggle with counterfeit gods and we make sacrifices to these gods and hope that they will bring salvation of some kind to us, yet they never deliver. Instead of setting us free, they put us in deeper shackles and bondage. Every area of our lives where we lack peace and the root of our anxieties is not due to some subpar internal spirituality that you just need to master better. Every area of our lives that lacks peace and the root of our anxieties is not lack of self-actualization. It's not because those people who always irritate you. We lack peace in our lives because we want to be God. We do. And our hearts rebel against the shalom with God for which we were made. We don't need counterfeit resolutions. We don't need counterfeit gods. We need counter kingdom power to make peace in our lives. But how do we get counter kingdom power to make peace? Well, I can tell you one thing, it comes with a price. It comes with a price. Because before we can make peace with others in our world, we have to address the root of our problem. We need peace with God. But how can anyone be at peace with God. He made us in shalom. We've broken, we've turned away from that. How, how can we make peace with God? Well, Romans 5, chap, chapter 5, verse 1 says it like this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we have peace with God? We're justified by faith. What does that mean? We are made right with God through faith. And if you're like, well, what does that exactly mean? Well, let's look at the context of Romans. Right before this, Romans chapter one through four, Paul is building out this idea that both Jew and Gentile are in the same boat. As some people say, that the, lev the, lev or the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Like we're all in the same playing field. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you grew up a Jew and you had the promises of the old covenant or you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter at this point. We're all level. And he says this at the end of chapter four, he says that I've, I've put in what he was referring to before that just to make it clear. It will be counted as righteousness to those who what? Believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is what we believe to be justified by faith before God. There's no works that you can do. There's no rolling up your sleeves and getting a little, pulling up your bootstraps, doing a little bit better, being a little bit better peacemaker is not gonna make it happen. No, we have to do it only by faith in the one who took our place, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And when we have faith in him, we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God. You see, we have turned our backs on God and we reap the lack of peace that that brings, but God initiates peace making with us in Jesus Christ. God is about making and restoring shalom with his wayward creation and he does it through Jesus. 
But he does more than that because those that God makes peace with, he makes into a people. Regardless of your background, regardless of where you have fallen short, regardless of your pedigree, regardless of what your nationality or your race is, he takes us and makes us into a people. Like the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Jews, the people of the promise, the bloodline of Messiah. They were separate from the Gentiles in the old covenant, but they weren't just separate. They didn't like the Gentiles. They were hostile towards one another. The Gentiles were as well with the Jews. But notice what happens in Ephesians when Jews and Gentiles make peace with God. Look at verse 11 in chapter two. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's bleak. No hope and without God in the world. And as far as I know, and I don't know you all, but I don't believe anybody in here, and, and if you are, I'd love to meet you afterwards, are Jewish by race. That means every one of us in here is a Gentile. Every one of us at this time would have been born with no hope. But notice what he says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, who once, you who once were far off have been brought near. And how have we been brought near? By the blood of Christ. Do you see the price of peacemaking? The blood of Jesus, God in the flesh, dying on a brutal Roman cross was what it took to bring us near. And then notice what Paul says about what Jesus accomplishes when he makes peace between God and those who trust in him by faith. Starting in verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Notice we the Jew and Gentile both needed peace preached to them. He preached it to both those who were far off and those who were near. And then he finishes verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the repetition of the word one throughout that passage, right? He's made us both one. That's what he says in verse 14, that he might reconcile us both to God in one 
body through the cross, that we approach the Father by one spirit, one, one, one. People who have made peace with God through Jesus Christ are one people who have access to the Father through one spirit. And Jesus reconciles the two that were divided by hostility. Not like, oh, we didn't really know each other well, kind of feeling things out. Hostility. And he makes them one. And so my rhetorical question for you is this, how might you and I realizing the fact that we all gain access to God the same way? By grace and through his spirit, how might that change the way we see those that we're in conflict with inside the body of Christ? Because the reality is that other Christians will irritate you. Other Christians will make you frustrated. And let me tell you, let me break the news to you. You're going to do it too. How do we make peace? We remember the fact that we make peace with God because God initiates with us. And this peace has ramifications. When we have peace with God, it's kind of like I said a few weeks ago in the merciful sermon. Mercy has a flow downward and out, and so does peace with God. We get this right, it's gonna naturally affect these things. But what about people outside the church? How might remembering our peace with God being purchased for us instead of purchased by our awesomeness change the way that we engage a world that's in conflict with us, that doesn't understand our beliefs, that thinks we're crazy, that thinks that we're uh, impeding progress. How in the world can we relate to them? Well, may imagine the way that we would relate to them if we were to remember that God initiates peace with us. You see, peace with God makes people of God for the purposes of God in the world but it begins with peace with God. And guess who initiates the peace with God? It ain't you. It's not me. God initiates the peace. And in so doing, we are at peace to be peacemakers with others, both brothers and sisters in our family of God and also the world outside of us. The gospel is a constant reminder that we who were far off and brought near, have peace with God only through Jesus. And the root of this lack of peace that we feel, the root of the lack of peace in this peaceless world is lacking peace with the maker of this world. But Jesus preached peace. He proclaimed the gospel of his kingdom and we have peace with God through faith in him but it comes at a price. It cost him his life. Jesus reconciled us to God through the cross. So we should expect that making peace in our world is gonna be costly for us too. When we attempt to make peace between people in our world, it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be difficult. Because while people in the kingdom of this world desire peace, they don't want to pay the price of peace. Because the cost of peace is humility. It's dying to self. It's forgiving others. 
It's absorbing the offense. But this is the life of the disciple of Jesus. He says as much. In Luke chapter nine, here's what Jesus says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm sorry, I missed that. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, I think a lot of times we think about, we take up our cross when we profess faith in Christ, like I'm, I've died with Christ, now I've been raised to eternal life, and we pack up our cross and we put it away, and Jesus says, no, you take that mug out daily. Take up your cross daily. Daryl Johnson says it like this, Somewhere along the way in the Christian life, we have to come to terms with the fact that the cross is not only the source of our new life in Christ, but is the pattern of our new life in Christ. There's a price for peacemaking. Peacemakers take up their cross. And we know this is true. If anybody in here has ever made peace, you know that it's true. We know that to make peace in the world in which we live, like really make peace, not experience it, make it, means we often have to actually forgive. Like to reconcile with someone often means we have to absorb the debt. They can't fix what they've done to us typically. They can't fully make it right. We have to absorb it. And when we try to do this apart from the power of the gospel, this can result in bitterness because it's hard to actually forgive. Like we might say we do, but it's hard to actually do it. And then when we try to do it apart from the gospel, I think what happens is we hold on to the pain and it eats us alive. The offense is actually unreconciled. And this is at best more peacekeeping than actually it is peacemaking because all it takes, and, we, and I think most of us can resonate with this, we say we've forgiven somebody, but all it takes is another offense by that person and you're not only dealing at that point with the new offense, you lump in everything from the past in with it. And now the deficit that they've built is deeper than before and this is crushing to relationships. Only in the power of the gospel can the price of peacemaking be paid with joy and hope. Not because we enjoy it, but because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, the peacemaker, as we take up our cross. And Hebrews says that when he took up his cross, he did it for the joy set before him. Not that he enjoyed the cross, but that what the cross was accomplishing brought him joy. Peacemakers preach peace and reconciliation by modeling the sacrificial love that we've received that has made peace with God. So how do we go about more peacemaking in our lives? See, this beatitude is a declaration first. Blessed are the peacemakers. But it is also, I do believe, an exhortation from Jesus to continue down the path of peacemaking not to give in to the pull and the tug that is natural in this world that would rather us become a stoic or to become an authoritarian threat, removing all of the conflict around us. We are not mob bosses of our Christian mafia family, right? We're not sitting there like, dig it out, right? That's not what we do. 
That's not who we are. We continue down the path to peacemaking, but how? Well, first, as I already mentioned, I think the first thing we do is we, we look at the example that was set for us in Jesus. But I also believe it will help us to take a look back as we close here at the Beatitudes that we've had up to this point. You see, when we hear the Beatitudes, I think we tend to think about them like the Enneagram. Right? Like, and that's kind of how I thought before. I don't know if you don't know the Enneagram, look it up. You can spend literally the rest of your day and probably all week looking at it. But for those of you that know the Enneagram, I think a lot of times we look at that and we're like, oh yeah, I'm a meek with a wing, hunger and thirst. Like that's just kind of, you know, I, I struggle with the whole like porn spirit thing, but, I, but I'm really good at, and, and so I think what happens is, I think that's kind of how I viewed the Beatitudes, but, but they're like separate blessings for different people. But I think the reality is like what I think the Lord has shown me in this series is that I believe Jesus isn't necessarily describing different kinds of kingdom people, but he's saying people in his kingdom over their life of sanctification, over their life as he makes them more like Jesus, they will resemble these qualities. These are blessings of what Jesus is observing in his people, but also what he's forming in his people. Why do I believe this? Well, two reasons. First, if you haven't already noticed, I think the Beatitudes build on each other. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually broken and realize that they're bankrupt, that they have nothing that God's going to be wowed at from their spiritual gifts. And yet God says, when you realize your need for me, Yours is the kingdom of heaven. But we said, like, when that happens, we, we shouldn't be, like, nonchalant about the brokenness in our world. We're not like, yeah, I'm poor. It's pretty great. Instead, we mourn it. We mourn the brokenness in our hearts. We mourn the brokenness that we see in the world. And God says, when we do that, we're comforted. So you see, like, poor in spirit kind of leads to a mourning. And then when we mourn like that, we, it actually leads to meekness, to, to gentleness, to realizing, like, hey, we all need help. And, and in that aspect, then what happens is we like, we see the brokenness in our world and we think, man, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for God to just come and fix this mess. We hunger and we thirst for righteousness in our hearts. We hunger and thirst for righteousness in the world around us. And on top of that, that makes us merciful because if we want to see people made right, we offer mercy to those in need. We offer mercy to the outcast and we offer mercy to the sinner. You see, we... We see these things build, and as, as we do that, the pure in heart, those who have an undivided desire, or at least they strive to have an undivided desire for the Lord, they're pursuing him, hungering and thirsting, showing mercy. You see, these are building. And with all of that undergirding our understanding, the path of peacemaking is to see all of these qualities building themselves out in a person over time. You see, the path to peacemaking is to realize our poverty of spirit. The path to peacemaking is to mourn the brokenness that is in need of peace. The path to peacemaking is to be gentle and to use our strength to bring reconciliation instead of overpower the one who we're at conflict with. The path to peacemaking is to hunger and thirst for righteousness in our world and in ourselves by making peace with others. The path to peacemaking is to offer mercy 
to our enemies in their time of need, the path to peacemaking is to pursue not counterfeit gods, but the one true God with a heart solely after his kingdom. These are not multiple paths to peacemaking. These are the path to peacemaking. But not only do the Beatitudes point to one type of person who's growing in these ways, the second reason I think the Beatitudes are really talking about one person is because they're pointing to the one giving the Beatitudes. You see, Jesus is the hero. And I said that a few weeks ago and I'm saying it again. He is the hero of the, hero of the Beatitudes. He is the one who has actually all of these qualities. He's not spiritually bankrupt, but he lowers himself. Philippians 2 says that he did not consider some equality with God something to be held onto, but instead he took the form of a servant. He mourned the brokenness and it provoked him to action. He said he's gentle and lowly in heart when we approach him with a poor spirit. He was so hungry and thirsty for righteousness in our world, he brought the kingdom of heaven from heaven to earth. He was merciful, engaging with the outcast and the sinner. And his purity of heart, the only pure heart to truly ever live, he gives us his purity. He unites us with him in faith and then calls us to follow him with a pure heart. And he made peace with God for us through the blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is not a way to make peace. He is the way to peacemaking. He is the path to peacemaking and to making peace with God and peace with one another. And when we step into his counter kingdom by faith, we are transformed, brothers and sisters, into his image, the image of every beatitude for the glory of his name and for the blessing of life now and forever. We are not just citizens either in his kingdom. We are children of God. Children of God, heirs according to the promise given to us in the gospel. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. So as we close today, if you're not a follower of Christ, the big takeaway for you is just you need to be at peace with God. And if I wasn't abundantly clear before, the way that happens is only through faith. Faith in Christ and what he did on your behalf, taking on human flesh, and instead of turning his back on God, maintained shalom with God the whole time so that he could be our substitute, making peace by the bloodshed on the cross. That is for everyone. And if you're in the room today or if you're watching online and that's not your story, that you are still not at peace with God, you can be, you can be by faith. It can happen now, today. Not like, oh, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better this week. No, you're missing the point. 
can happen right now by faith in Jesus Christ and he can change you from the inside out. And if you're here today as a follower of Jesus, the takeaway I have for you is just to rest in the fact that you have peace with God. That's a declaration over your life. And all the areas in your heart where you don't see peace, would you pursue him? Lord, am I, am I, am I, am I looking for peace elsewhere? Am I trying to tether my heart back to things of this world? And know that, Christian, as you engage with the Lord in that, he's not going, I told you. I mean, I feel like for a lot of my life, that's how I felt like the Lord responded to me. When I came to him, like, Lord, I, I, I repent, I've, I've messed up. I saw him more like that, that guy ready to just let me know. Yeah, you did mess up. Let me tell you all the ways. Instead, he says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. So believer in the room today, if you're not feeling at peace with God, would you sort that out with him? And then of course, the second takeaway is to just exhort us to be peacemakers. It's not easy, it's costly, but it resembles our Father, the peacemaking, shalom-making God. And may we be about His work in that way until He returns, when one day we will all be at peace, finally and forever. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence today. We've sang songs to you. We've invited you into this room. Not that you need our invitation, but rather it's a, it's a way of us submitting ourselves to you. And so we ask now through the preaching of your word, through the singing of those songs that you would stir in us a deeper peace. I thank you, Father, that you don't have to continually make peace with us. Once we are in Christ, it is fully and finally settled. But I pray, Spirit, that you would reveal to us the areas in which we are still trying to cling on to other things that's robbing us of peace with you. It's robbing us of at least the, uh, the experience of it. We want to experience the reality of our peace with you so that it can flow out to having peace with others. Father, forgive us when we cling to bitterness, when we refuse to forgive, when we stir up conflict instead of resolve it. God, would you make your people all over the globe, but specifically, would you make your people here at Journey a people that are known for peace, not for our glory, but that so that when people see it, they give glory to you, our Father in heaven. We love you. Would you do it? You can. We believe you will. In Jesus' name, amen.